If you will join me in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, if you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find our text this morning on page 941. Romans chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 30. And our sermon is entitled this morning, Sola Fide, by faith alone. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are faith, gift, and law. Now, we're continuing this morning our series uh, through uh, principles of the Protestant Reformation as we celebrate this year the 500th anniversary of when the Protestant Reformation began. And if you haven't been here over the past few weeks, we've been thinking about all of these major things that took place when God used His people to bring the church out of the Dark Ages back to a place of biblical truth and practice primarily in the 16th century. Now, we've looked at the first two major principles, which were sola scriptura, or scripture alone, and last week we looked at sola gratia, by grace alone. And so this morning we turn to the doctrinal issue that really became the fundamental issue for those who sought to bring reform into the church, away from a teaching that had very long been distorted as the true meaning of the gospel. We're seeking to answer this fundamental question relating to our condition as human beings. How can I be right with God? Now, of course, the question itself presumes several things. It presumes the fact that we are not right with God. And that being right with God is a good, important, and necessary thing. We are presupposing that it is a desirable and and possibly a right thing to know that we stand rightly with God. And the Bible tells us something of why this is a problem for us that has to be worked out. Because while God is a personal God, while God is a knowable God, God is also a holy God. God is the creator, God is sovereign and The basis of our responsibility lies in creation because God made us for himself. And our wretchedness, our sin, is completely detached from his holiness and from his greatness and from his love. Yet, as Augustine observed, if we were made for God, we shall be restless until we find him. And that's really what we see. Why are people obsessed? Why are all of us, apart from Christ, why are we obsessed with new stuff and and bigger and better things? And why do people become addicted to drugs and, and alcohol and sex and adrenaline rushes? Because our hearts are restless. And when we find that our new thing or our new experience isn't providing for us the need that exists in our hearts the way that we thought it would, when that new car isn't so amazing anymore, when the concert that you had to go to is over and and all the excitement no longer exists, when the one-night stand you were so excited about actually left you feeling more guilty than fulfilled, you're coming face to face with the reality that you were made for God, and yet you don't have God, and when you don't have Him, your heart is restless and unsettled because you are at enmity with your Creator. Now, the world will try to put makeup on all of this and change it and make it look like it's something it's not. But the truth is that apart from God, we will pursue self-interests. We will will cater to our own self-will. And because 
this is God's world, and I am God's creation, one day I'm going to have to give an account for the life that I've lived. And so whether or not we want to acknowledge it, even you, maybe, maybe you don't want to acknowledge that there's a God who, who requires you to look to Him that you might have life. And even you may not want to admit that you're restless and unsettled and searching for meaning and purpose in your life, but regardless of what you want to admit, you know inherently that for God's glory and for your ultimate good, the most important thing that you could ever do is pursue a right relationship with God Himself. The Bible insists that He alone lays down the ground rules for such a relationship, but the Bible also insists that because He is God of grace and He is a God of mercy, He provides the means to ac- and access to His presence that we could not gain on our own. That, in short, is what the Bible is all about. God pursuing sinful human beings to bring them into right relationship with Himself, both for their good and for His own glory. That is the message of the Bible. But the question embedded within that is, how? How does God do that? Is there anything that I can do? And I want you to think about this question. If a person came up to you, a friend or a coworker or a family member, and they said to you, what must I do to be right with God? Now, we pray for those kinds of evangelistic experiences. They don't necessarily exist that easily. But if someone came to you and said, what must I do to be right with God? What would you say? How would you answer that question? The answer of the Reformation, and we believe the answer of the Bible, is simple to articulate, and yet it is profound and it is unique in all the worldviews that exist, and that is this, sola fide, by faith alone. Now, I believe that if you just were to read the Bible without any outside influence, this shouldn't be a controversial thing at all. There shouldn't be any question that this is what the Bible teaches. However, it is controversial for two main reasons. First, it was controversial during the Reformation because the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at the time that men like Martin Luther were were seeking to reform is that for one salvation... Yes, faith is necessary. Yes, grace is necessary. However... So were a whole host of other works that make a person righteous. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. So that's number one. At the time of the Reformation and on to this day, it was a very popular idea that, and it, it is official Roman doctrine, that if you want to be right with God, you must have good works and righteousness walking alongside your faith and God's grace. Well, the second reason this can be controversial for many Christians is not because we don't all affirm that it's true, but because it's just not how we actually understand the gospel and understand what God calls us to be and to do as believers. So we've sort of gotten the gospel message that still adds some works to what the Christian life is and to what the gospel is. Now, here's the thing. Some of this may sound very familiar to a lot of you. As a a pastor doing ministry for over 11 years now, I have had a lot of conversations with people who will tell me something like, 
Listen, my idea of what it means to be a Christian forever was that there were these things on one list that I'm supposed to do, and there's another list of things I'm not supposed to do, and as long as I do the things I'm supposed to do and I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, then I'm good. And so you listen to the right music, and you watch the right movies, and you wear the right t-shirts, and you go to the right conferences and camps, and you don't say the wrong words, and you certainly don't vote for Democrats, and you put your hand over your heart for the Pledge of Allegiance. Allegiance, and you shout amen when a preacher says something about Jesus being the only way to heaven. You think a good sermon is when you walk away and feel like you've been hit by a truck or trampled by a thousand horses. And you think it's a compliment to tell the preacher that your toes were stepped on today. Why? Because all of this makes us feel good about doing what we think we need to do. It makes us feel bad enough that will keep pressing on to do better, to try harder, to work more. And that is what a lot of you have heard, and and maybe some of you have believed if you've spent time growing up in church, growing up in a place that sort of kind of preached the gospel, really actually only preached moralism. Moralism is the idea that if I'm going to be a good Christian, I have to behave in a certain way. Christianity, then, is about behavior. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place to talk about our morality and about our behavior in our lives as as Christians, as as blood-bought, saved people of God who have the Holy Spirit. There are things that we are called to be and to do as God's people. That matters. However, the gospel is not about asking, how should I behave? As long as I know how to behave, I'm going to go try and behave that way. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not cleaning yourself up so that you can be ready for God. No, the gospel is saying, by God's grace, I have faith in Christ and stand upon Him as my sole source of hope and trust that when I die, I will be with God forever. Not because of what I've done, but because Jesus lived a life that I couldn't live and fulfilled the law that I break every single day because Jesus died on the cross a death that I deserve to die, that not a single one of my sins would be held against me because God has chosen to set His affections on me and declare that I'm counted as righteousness even though I myself am not righteous at all. That's the gospel. And so in our hearts, if we live in a world of moralism, if we live a life in which we think the Christian life is really about doing more and trying harder, We undermine the gospel and we're actually pushing against the gospel in a way that is far more nefarious than anything Rome ever taught because at least they recognize and acknowledge what they actually believe. And this is why I think sometimes when you hear a sermon about something uh, where a guy like me is saying, listen, there's this huge cataclysmic difference between what we're saying and what went on during the Reformation and and what was was taught in the church and what what Rome teaches. Sometimes people get offended by even hearing that, thinking we're we're just bashing Rome. Well, no, I think the reason sometimes that is so profoundly uh, offensive to some people is because we don't even understand the differences. And if we don't understand the gospel and that which Paul says is of first importance, then understanding the differences and why it matters so much is is just going to sound like the rantings of an angry man. Now, I wish we could all agree and, and, and not have 
distinctions to make and not have disagreements. However, this is the heart of the Christian faith. The gospel is at stake. And without the gospel, the true gospel, we only have what's left over in every other religious worldview in the world. And so justification is a thing in churches that if someone is trying to faithfully preach the gospel each week, you're going to hear about it a lot. And so if you spend a lot of time in church, you're going to hear a lot of this, and eventually you hear a sermon like this that's about justification by faith alone, and immediately you might think, I got it, I'm going to tune out, I've got this already, it's a good time for a nap. And I was thinking this week, as a preacher, if you can't preach a sermon on justification by faith with about two minutes of warning, you probably shouldn't be a preacher. This is the heart of what we do. I was joking with Pastor Sam earlier this week. I said, you know, the problem is no one's ever really written anything on this subject, (laughs) which really means every other book on my shelf is probably about justification by faith. Martin Luther once said, I have preached justification by faith so often, and I feel sometimes that you, the people in his church, are so slow to receive it that I could almost take the Bible and bang it about your heads. In other words, he realized that our hearts are so prone to moralism that week in and week out, preaching of justification by faith never changes in terms of our need. We should kind of hear a lot of the same sermon every week because we need that every week. Charles Spurgeon said, the doctrine of justification by faith through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is very much to my ministry what bread and salt are to the table. As often as the table is set, there are those necessary things. That's why he's so fatty, he ate a lot of bread. This is the very salt of the gospel. It is impossible to bring it forward too often. It is the soul-saving doctrine. It is the foundational doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Calvin said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is, quote, the main hinge on which religion turns. And again, Martin Luther said, if the article of justification is once lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. So these guys thought it was of utmost importance. I believe, your elders believe, it is of utmost importance because collectively we believe that what the Bible teaches on this issue is of utmost importance. Paul said it is of first importance. So that's what we're dealing with this morning. So we're going to do a few things. We're going to read our text, and then from that text I want to answer a few very simple questions. One, what is the problem? Two, what is the Bible's solution? And three, how do we then live in light of that? So let's read Paul's letter to the Romans from chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded." 
By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The first thing we need to address is the problem. That's our first question to ask of the text this morning. What is the problem? Very simply, the problem that sola fide seeks to answer is how it is that you and I can approach the presence of God. And as you read through the Bible, and particularly as you're working through the Old Testament, you cannot honestly walk away from it in any conclusion other than that God is magnificently holy and glorious and free of any imperfection or change or sin or unrighteousness. So in order for us to approach him, we cannot just stroll into his presence because we have a problem. And that problem is what Paul tells us in verse 23. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I and everyone else who has ever lived has this problem. And and the result that has come about is because of our father Adam and our mother Eve. From the moment we were conceived, we inherited their sinful nature, and then we live that out day by day in alarmingly devious ways that get more sophisticated and more convoluted with time in our lives. And Paul tells us back in Romans chapter 1, all of us really know, whether we want to admit it or not, all of us really know that this is our problem. We all know that God is holy and that we are not And in order to approach God, I need to be like him, but I'm not. So if that's what I'm supposed to be, but I'm not that way, I want to try to find a way to get there, and that is my inclination to want to do so. Well, prior to this text in Romans chapter 3, Paul is addressing the issue of how we try to do certain things in order to solve the problem. And it's implied in our very verse this morning, our, our natural attempt, our natural inclination To be right with God is to try and live up to the standard of perfection by doing works of the law. Now, I'm not even talking here about someone who is earnestly seeking God in some way. I'm talking about mankind in general. Why do you think that the largest uh, section in most bookstores is the self-help section? Why is there so much talk all the time in pop culture about being a good person or or how to be a good person? Look, you, you can go all the way back to the writings of the ancient Greeks, and do you know what they were writing and thinking about then? How to be virtuous and what that means and how to define it so that we can encapsulate that and live it out. But what's that... What's the reality here? We are a few thousand years later and we're still having conversations that are very much the same about whether or not it's acceptable to kill a baby in the womb or whether or not one race of people dominates over another or if unnatural relationships should be celebrated and normalized and if we should teach our kids about gender fluidity and self-identification. I mean, we haven't really made any progress over time, have we? Why not? Because the problem today is the same that it has always been. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. 
Your heart, my heart, are desperately sick and wicked. Listen, everyone wants to be able to say they're a good person. But here's the fact. None of us are good people. Not one of us. It doesn't exist. Look again at what Paul says. For there is no distinction. In other words, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you are or how you look or how good you smell or how great you are at basketball or how many people you feed at a homeless shelter or how much money you spend on your neighborhood beautification project or how much candy you give out at Halloween. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and there is no distinction. For all of the talk these days in our culture about how different all of us are, the Bible seems to say something exactly the opposite, namely that all of us are pretty much exactly the same. All of us, every one of us, is a sinner, and there's no way around that, and that's the problem. Because if we want life with God, if we want what our hearts are so desperately longing for, we don't have the means within ourselves to get there. So what we try to do is bridge the gap. We try to do what I call suicidal pole vaulting. We see that God is way over there. And if I'm going to get from here to there, I'm going to have to run as hard and fast as I can with a pole in my hands in hopes that I can fling myself across the chasm to get where he is. But it's suicide because we're not talking about like when you were a kid jumping from one couch to the other because the floor was lava. We're talking about pole vaulting across the Grand Canyon. You ever see that place? It's not happening. You can't do that. And that pole I'm, I'm trying to use is made up of my works. It's made up of all of my, my law keeping, all the things that I use to define myself as a good person. And so I take my supposed good deeds and me being a supposed good person in hand and I run and I sprint and I try to plant it in the ground and fling myself across. And if I'm going to try and do that, I'm going to end up at the bottom of the chasm, nowhere closer to God. And in fact, the Bible says I'll be all the more frustrated than I was when I was standing up on the other side of the cliff. Here's the thing, the first use of the law, the first important thing God's law does And what it's intended to do is not to say, hey, you, go do this. No, it says, hey, you, not a chance you will ever be able to do this. You can't do it. And the harder you try, the more frustrated you will be because the more you will fail. So it's ludicrous that we would ever build an idea of being right with God on the idea that we just need to have better works. I need a longer pull, or I need, to, I need to run harder or get a better angle of attack so that I have more leverage to get across the chasm. Listen, if you have a friend that tells you they're going to pull vault across the Grand Canyon, find out what day that is, and about three days later, get off work so you can show up for their funeral. It's not happening. They can't do it. And anyone who says they seek to live their life based upon their works as their means of being right before God is dead already. They're walking in a life of suicidal pole vaulting. If you want to be righteous, if you want righteousness to be manifest in your life, it will not and it cannot come by works of the law. The law speaks to righteousness. The prophets spoke to righteousness. But if you want a righteous standing before God, it will not come by way of your law keeping because you were never good enough. Why? What's the standard? Perfection. And how are you doing with that? Probably as good as I'm doing with that. 
every time you try to launch yourself across the chasm, you end up at the bottom. And the law reminds you again, here you are again, you can't do it. That's our problem. And yet, and yet, somehow, God shows his righteousness in a different way. He doesn't brush over evil or fail to speak the truth, but he still makes a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed that is consistent with his character. We don't have to stand in the midst of a problem without a remedy. So the second question we have to answer is, what is the solution? We've defined the problem, but what's the solution? John Calvin defines justification as acceptance whereby God receives us into his favor and regards us as righteous. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. I'll explain all that. In other words, justification is a legal term. It's a legal rendering by a judge that tells a person that they are accepted and received into his favor and counted as righteous because whatever they have done has been forgiven. And the way God does that is not to just ignore our sins. We talked about that last week. He doesn't just ignore our sins, but he passes the penalty for our sins onto another and specifically onto the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we are in Christ, we are accepted by God based upon the righteousness of Christ, based upon the righteousness of another person. And herein lies one of the major distinctions between the reformers of the Protestant faith today and Rome and what men like Martin Luther rejected. And they fought against in their attempt to reform the church. Rome teaches that we are infused with righteousness. And so we actually become righteous. And in fact, Rome teaches that you you have God's grace and you need that and you have faith, but you also have to be righteous in order to be saved. And that righteousness is infused in you. So you're not counted as righteous. You're not declared righteous. In Rome's system, you have to be righteous. And nobody is, even upon death, and so you have to go to a place not found in the Bible called purgatory in order to work things off in order that you may one day be fit to go to heaven. And yet we all know very quickly that our experience, even if I have 10,000 years to work it off, it's never going to happen. I will never be perfected apart from a work of God in Christ And so we understand that righteousness is needed, yes, and that righteousness is alien to us. It's not our own. It's someone else's, and we need to get it. How do I get it? Well, the Bible's answer is very simple. Look again at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay, so it's not in the law where we find this righteousness because it's from a source outside of the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you see it? I get righteousness that comes from Christ through faith in Christ. My righteous standing before God, my right standing before God is secured by Christ, having fulfilled all righteousness, and now I can live in Him as one who is counted as righteous. Now get this, we call this imputation. Remember we said Rome believes in infused righteousness. The idea is that we are made into righteous people. 
But the Bible teaches that righteousness is imputed. It's counted to us. It's placed upon us. So it's not ours. It's, it's from Christ, and it's credited to our account. It's like all of those scammer emails that you get come true all at the same time. Someone has some undisclosed amount of millions of dollars in an account somewhere, and they're just waiting for all of your personal information so they can give it to you. It's like all of that coming, coming true at once, but it's infinitely more important and valuable than $100 million from Nigeria or Sierra Leone. It's everlasting life with God. Because when God looks at a person who has placed their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus, He places the righteousness of Christ on them and credits that to them. And so He sees their account is full. Are you guilty? Yes, 100% guilty. But if you put your faith in Christ, will you be treated as guilty? Not a chance. You'll be treated as a son of God. Justification is decisive for all eternity, being in effect the judgment of the last day being brought forward to the cross of Christ. And so when we come to the day of judgment, we need not do that in fear as believers. Because the day of judgment has already been rendered. How can a man approach the presence of God? The Old Testament answers that the Lord will see to it. The fulfillment of the New Testament answers to the promise of the old. The Lord himself must come. Angels in the field of Bethlehem announce that he has come. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Agur, the wise man of old, put forward the question, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. And when the Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, Jesus gave the answer to those questions. He said, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus then used the amazing, this amazing figure to tell how he would be lifted, lifted heavenward. You remember he, he recalled back to the time of the Exodus and he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that anyone who believes in him may look to him and have eternal life. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? It must be the king of glory, the one who has come from heaven, the one who can tell Nicodemus of heavenly things. But he will ascend first by being lifted up a few feet off the ground on a cross. Like the serpent in the wilderness, he will be lifted up, he will be accursed, he will bear sin, and his life will be given as a ransom for many. And when the jailers asked Paul what they must do to be saved, he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul writes in our text in verses 24 and 25, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received. How? By faith. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, he writes, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live, how? By faith. So you see, brothers and sisters, faith in Christ saves. Faith is absolutely mandatory. But here's the good news in all of that. Faith is a gift from God. And faith must have content. 
Faith must have an object. The content of our faith is the gospel. But the object of our faith, who we have faith in, is Jesus Christ. Only the gospel saves because the law has no power to justify you. Faith gives life, and the reason you need faith is because you cannot live by the law, because it demands perfection. And you and I both know that you and I both fall far short. God can credit faith to you because Christ has died in your place, becoming a curse so that the blessing might be exchanged for that curse for all who are in Christ. It's the teaching of all of Scripture because it's the way that God has always done things. That's the solution. So we've looked at the problem, we've considered the solution, but now, so what? What do I do? How do I live in light of this? Look at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Listen, saving faith isn't just about intellectually in your mind giving an affirmation to certain teaching or doctrine. It's not just about saying that you think something is true. That's part of it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We must hear the gospel, and so we must give an intellectual understanding of that. But saving faith is more than that. Saving faith is leaning on and trusting in all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's by faith alone because it relies and rests upon Christ alone for deliverance from God's wrath. Justification is by faith alone, for faith finds its joy in Christ alone, seeing Him as the pearl of great price, the one who is more desirable than anyone or anything else. Faith rests in the beloved, realizing that there is no salvation or peace or joy anywhere apart from Him. So you see, faith saves not not because of our faith, but because of who our faith is in the one who is merciful, the one who is mighty, the one who is just and loving, so that both his judging and saving righteousness are satisfied at the cross. So here's what all of that does. Paul tells us that all of that excludes our boasting because we can't earn this thing. It comes to us by faith and it's given to us by God's grace and is lived out by God's grace and the Holy Spirit at work within us. It's all of work of, a work of God from beginning to end. And listen, you don't have any great status. I don't know what you've been told. I don't know what you found on Ancestry.com, but you are not some special pedigree. This was not just for the Jew. This is for the Gentile also. This was for the circumcised and the uncircumcised alike, and it has always been that way, and it will always be that way until the Lord returns. And so if you've built your acceptance before God on anything other than faith, you've built it on sand and it will all come crashing down because you can't pull vault across that chasm. Look, as Christians, we have to just be honest. Am I messed up? Well, you know me and you know the answer to that. Yes, extremely messed up. Are you messed up? I've got some crazy stories to tell. Yes, you are. (laughs) But here's the thing that Paul is telling us in our text. Get over yourself. 
get over your background because all of us are in the same place. We all desperately need Jesus, not just once so that we can be saved, but day by day so that we can live in his righteousness, now seeking to live not according to our own, but according to his law in the way that he has given it to his believers. The truth is, you're going to try. You're going to try to live, even as a Christian, in self-righteous ways. Today, at some point, you're going to lie, or you're going to get angry, or you're going to be prideful. Why? Because you're trying to justify yourself, and it's going to be frustrating because it's not going to work. You're going to be mad because someone didn't live up to your standard. And you're going to burst out in some way as a result of that. And all of that is you seeking to justify yourself. So you're going to be experiencing what Martin Luther said is the reality of the Christian life. And I think about this all the time in my own life. He had a Latin phrase that he used to talk about with, with relationship to who we are as a justified people living in our earthly bodies. That phrase was simul justus et peccator, means I am at the same time righteous or just and a sinner. That's the reality of our lives. We're both right, made righteous, we're counted as righteous, and we are also sinners. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. That's us, isn't it? At the same time, I recognize that I'm counted as righteous because God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him I might become the righteousness of God, and yet I still sin in my mortal body. I do stupid, awful things that I regret and have to repent for and seek forgiveness for and deal with uncomfortable situations because of. But you know what? In the end, in the end, I get to be reminded that even those things, even my dumbest moments and most ridiculous decisions aren't going to be met by a vindictive, overbearing father who can't wait to punish me, but instead a loving, gracious father who says, I love you so much that I gave my son's life for you to live in him by faith. So, yes, repent. Yes, go and sin no more, but live in the freedom that comes by faith in Christ alone. That's it, brothers and sisters. Justification by faith, when we truly get it, when we truly understand it, when we live in light of it, it is the most freeing thing that you can experience in this life because you finally get off a treadmill that you've been running on for a carrot on a stick that you'll never get to. Get off the treadmill and rest because treadmills are not fun. Get off. Rest in Christ. Live free. Your faith in Christ is enough. It's enough. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word this morning. We thank you for your kindness. Not just in giving us your word, but in telling us in your word how it is that we can be made right with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I am so thankful that you didn't give us hoops to jump through. You didn't give us tests to pass. You didn't give us certain things that we must do. But that you told us, and you call us to do, even as believers, to continually look to Christ alone by faith. That we might walk in the freedom and the liberty that is ours because of what Christ has done. May we never grow tired of hearing of the great truths of justification by faith alone. May it guide your people and your church, and may we walk faithfully in light of all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.